Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Wednesday, June 3rd. We begin with our weekly Ask the Doctor series, focusing on your COVID-19 questions. We get answers from infectious disease specialist Dr. Craig Janney of the University of Calgary. Patients isolated during the coronavirus crisis could be at risk of future mental health issues. That's according to an Alberta ICU doctor. We'll get details on how our medical professionals are filling the void of family members unable to visit their loved ones during this time. Then we head stateside for an update on the continued unrest due to the racial protests in several major American cities. We catch up with Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent, on a somewhat calmer version of the demonstrations that took place last night. The greatest outdoor show must go on, at least in some capacity. This year's Calgary Stampede may have been cancelled, but that doesn't mean the spirit of Stampede is gone. We'll meet the 2020 Stampede Parade Marshal Felipe Mazzetti Leite. And finally, it's a chance to give much-needed credit to those going above and beyond during this time of pandemic. We'll hear the story of our latest community champion nominee, a local business that has pivoted during this time of crisis to feed Calgarians in need. 8-11 on the morning news. Through the pandemic, we've brought an expert in weekly to help answer all of your COVID-19 questions. He's a rock star, and he joins us again this morning, Dr. Craig Janney, the Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. Good morning, Dr. Janney. Good morning, both. I hope you don't mind us calling you a rock star, but <laughs> I think it's great. You kind of are. Yeah, in, in plain English, you break down the answers to these questions and take as many as, as you can every segment, so we're going to get right to it. You ready for it? Sounds great, yeah. Okay, number one, is there a certain blood type that is more susceptible to getting COVID-19? Yeah, I've heard this story uh, a number of months ago, but I have not seen any scientific evidence at all that seems to support it. We've not seen any warnings, any concerns from the medical community, uh, any heads up to, to watch out for a blood type. So I'm not seeing any evidence that, that there is a blood type associated with the worst disease. Uh, how about new relationships? Should people start dating during COVID-19? <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure if they're asking you for a date specifically. This really falls into individual circumstances. So if you're in a part of the the, the country or or areas in Alberta where there's very few cases, we have been told it's safe to start expanding our social circles to meet in small groups, to see individual people. Uh, I think it really depends on on the situation in the community and your own situation. If, for example, you are a patient at at high risk or or primary caregiver to somebody at risk, you have to proceed a little more cautiously. But we're seeing the cases drop uh, around the country for the most part, and we are being encouraged to open up a little bit and to reestablish social circles. So in my case, it seems like in most places, it's it's probably fairly safe to to go about doing that. Here's one. I got sick in January, and I think I may have had it. How can I test now to see if I did? Yeah, so this will be the the serology test, the blood test. Uh, I am not entirely sure if that's being offered by Alberta Health Services. I do not think it is at this point, but there are a number of research studies that are using it. And if you contact uh, the health link, they may be able to set you up with who is recruiting patients to do the the serology or blood testing on this. Dr. Janney, does having a beard or mustache make me more susceptible to catching the virus? So there were a number of recommendations to shave, but this was for healthcare professionals who require the tight-fitting N95 masks to be sealed to their skin. Uh, reports from the U.S. CDC and Health Canada have suggested there's no need to shave uh, facial hair for the, the average public. And, for example, wearing a cloth mask over top is just as effective whether you have a shaven face or not.
Here's a good one, a difference of terms, the difference between an epidemic and a pandemic. Great question. Uh, that's uh, uh, my immunology course in the fall. Half the class misses that question, failed to use it. No. Um, these are descriptive terms how a virus moves. So an epidemic would be an outbreak of, of any infection or disease within a, a general region. So we could have an epidemic, for example, in Western Canada. Once you get into two World Health Organization regions, so showing that this has moved around the world, then it qualifies as a pandemic, regardless of how severe the disease is. It's a geographic uh, description. Okay. Are smokers and vapors more likely to catch COVID-19? I haven't seen evidence that they're more likely to catch it. I have seen evidence that smokers, for example, are more at risk of increased disease. So there is some lung dysfunction, and that could lead to more severe disease. The question about vaping is still very open and still actively being researched, but there have been warnings suggesting that vaping may also be associated with worse disease, but the evidence is still really new on this. Doctor, once exposed to the virus, how many days does it take to affect your body? person. So some reports are you start showing symptoms within the first three to four days. Other people, it's more than 10 days before they start developing any symptoms at all. So this is one reason why this COVID is extremely hard to contain, that people could have the virus for 10 days before they even know they're sick. And then we got to try and figure out where they caught it. Dr. Jenny, why does it appear that the source of the pandemic is still important? Well, this is critical to figure out where to expect, for example, another disease in the future. I mean, all, almost all of these pandemic diseases in humans seem to start in animals. And we tend to forget that even the flu, even influenza is traditionally an animal-borne disease. So we need to understand exactly where these diseases emerge from so we can have better protection to avoid the next one. Let's talk about uh, things like, you know, touch surfaces like bank machine money. Is that kind of thing safe? surfaces of uh, now you know there's always a risk so bank machine money probably safe you know unless you happen to have really bad luck and, and take your money out five minutes after somebody handles it to put it into the bank um, but these paper surfaces virus tends to last less than 24 hours so you can imagine if the machine was loaded yesterday it would be safe to take the money out today the bigger concern is actually the keypad on the bank machine so anybody using that ahead of you may have transferred virus to the keypad Good point. Here's a really good question. We've all used those public washrooms with the powerful hand dryers. They almost blow your skin off. (laughs) Um, If I'm using those, would that disperse the coronavirus throughout the entire washroom? It can in the air, um, but there's another advantage of, for example, paper towel. It has been shown that when you're washing your hands, if you use paper towel, it actually helps remove even more virus from the surface of your Mm. hands. So that extra little bit of rubbing seems to loosen up any dirt or debris that's left on your hands after you've put the soap on. So paper towel is more efficient at removing virus than an air dryer. And you can use it to open the bathroom door afterwards, too. Exactly. (laughs) So avoiding, again, a common touch surface. Uh, How many times can you wear an N95 mask or surgical mask? They're highly variable, depending on how long you've been wearing them. Are they clean? Are they... So the N95s and surgical masks, as long as they stay clean, you can continue to use them. But keep in mind that what we think is clean, you know, dirt, is not always what we're looking for. We're looking for, did they get moist? Is there a chance bacteria are living on them? In which case, that's time to replace the mask. I could have written this next question, doctor. Uh, Could you please ask if it's okay to have a garage sale? (laughs) 
uh, you, you, sure, you can have a sale. It's going to depend on whether anybody wants to stop by. Um, again, th- this is back to, to you know social activities that, that we are okay to start opening up in small groups, but we're asked to keep in mind that the more people that come through an area, the more likely there could be an infection spread. So you know, we, we have to really use our judgment as to what's happening in the community at any one time. This person saying I run a lot and the last couple of months I've had a real shortness of breath. I was exposed to thousands at a conference in Vegas in January. Could there be lingering effects from COVID and how would I know if I actually had caught the virus? Yeah, so we've had this question maybe a little earlier today that that if the event or if the suspected infection was quite a while ago, uh, the only real way to tell now is the serology test. We have seen people who have had COVID have some lasting effects, but these tend to be the ones that had some significant disease, reported to the doctor or were hospitalized. We have to keep in mind that it's not just COVID. There was flu this year. We are into allergy season now, so we have to be careful that not everything is COVID, and it's worth contacting HealthLink to see about serology. We have a timely question. We have to get this one in before the end of the segment, and it's very specific. After flying recently between Toronto and Calgary, we have no symptoms of COVID-19, but my sister is slated for surgery. Should we self-isolate for two weeks before seeing her? Um, yeah. I'm trying not to, to provide uh, any panicked advice. Or not. Um, if you're traveling from other health regions, currently I believe Alberta does not have any self-isolation guidelines. Other provinces do. So there's definitely a value in self-isolating if you've recently traveled. So if it's at all possible to self-isolate, that's not a bad idea. It's not required if you have no symptoms. If you had no contact with anybody that had symptoms in Toronto, odds are very low. But if you want to play it safe, uh, self-isolation basically is a worthwhile endeavor. Smart. A a smart thing to do, right? Not not insisted, but a smart thing to do. If you can, that's great. Fair enough. Thank you so much. You covered all of our questions, Doctor. Appreciate your time. As always, we'll talk to you next week. You're welcome. Take care. You too. That is Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. University of Alberta ICU Dr. Peter Brindley is concerned about the loneliness facing patients in ICU. He joins us now to talk about his concerns and how staff are acting like both family and health care providers. Good morning, Doctor. Good morning. Thank you. During normal times, the ICU would be fairly isolated, I would think. I can only imagine during the pandemic, it's even much more so. It can be. Uh, I mean, just as a quick preamble, I'm I'm sure it's not just me that's concerned Mm -hmm. about this. It's every one of our doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, allied healthcare workers. The list goes on. We're a massive team. And with the risk of sounding cute, we all care an enormous, enormous amount pre-pandemic, peri-pandemic, and Mm post-pandemic. So, you know, these are always things that go through our minds. Um, Again, with the risk of of sounding cute, I provide life support for patients in the form of breathing tubes. But families provide life support in terms of being there and holding hands and and communicating with us their wishes. So we just want to make sure we continue to do uh, all the right things and engage the family as much as we possibly can. I wouldn't be much without my family. 
So I'm sure it's the same for patients in our ICUs. So doctor, what has it been like for a patient who's in the ICU during this pandemic? From what we understand, no family is allowed to come in and visit. So how do you get that, 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 that love? How do you communicate that, you know, from, from the outside world? Well, it's an incredibly important question. Here's the good news. The restrictions are being lifted. Um, we haven't had a positive case of COVID in my ICU in a month. So that's wonderful. We still have patients with COVID. So things are getting better and cautiously, carefully, just like everything in society, those restrictions are being lifted. That's the number one thing you should know. Now, we are used to patients who don't have families visiting just because people live around the world and can't always come in. And there have also been other infections and restrictions in the past. So it's not that nobody's ever dealt with this before. It's just that as with everything with COVID, it's just that much more pronounced. We've done some terrific stuff. Uh, and, and by the way, huge kudos to the public. Some of the public centers in uh, pictures of their dogs because, you know, pet therapy is a big deal in hospitals. Uh, people centers in iPads so that people could FaceTime. And so efforts have been made. And, uh, you know, we still, when we're hold, wearing gloves, we still hold people's hands and touch their shoulders and, and try and make them feel like they're a fellow human on the journey through life. So we do everything we possibly can. It's just COVID makes things that much trickier. Yeah. You mentioned the loneliness of those uh, patients in ICU. Let's talk about the mental toll that it takes on you and your team because obviously, as you say, you, your job can be very technical, but you must very much uh, get attached to these patients and you have to take that home with you every day. Well, we do. Uh, I mean, just to give you a personal story, I'm, I'm the son of a scientist and I'm the son of a counsellor. And uh, when I started out this job, I thought it was all pills and potions. And, and the older I get, the more I realize it's about mum, the counsellor. Mm-hmm. Medicine's described as being the most scientific of the humanities and the most humane of the sciences. In other words, it's not all science and nor should it ever be. It's not all counselling and nor should it ever be because there's a lot of aggressive treatment that we have to use. There is a mental toll on our healthcare workers, but at the same time as not pushing that aside, you know, every one of us signed up for this job. In fact, you'll find we worked darn hard to get these jobs. So we knew what we were signing up for. We're happy to do so. And in fact, I've never been prouder of our teams uh, as they selflessly launch themselves into whatever comes through the door. So I actually, my sympathy has been more for families, as I've mentioned, and also, in fact, for the people in the hospital making us coffee, making us meals, delivering food. You know, in many ways, they're the unsung heroes. Uh, People have been banging pots and things for doctors and nurses, which is lovely, but I would much rather those pots and pans be bashed for essential workers in other fields, supply workers, and, and those that didn't sign up quite as willingly as we do when a pandemic comes around. Do you think that this pandemic has brought more humanity to hospitals in a way? I'm not the first person to say this, but it's brought out the very best and some of the worst in humanity, as stress always does. As I say, I've never been prouder of our teams. And, I mean, again, to give a bit of a personal anecdote, I've spent the last 25 years with people not knowing what the heck an ICU doctor even does. And that's certainly changed. Mm-hmm. People now know, now know exactly what we do. And 
Um, this was rather sweet. Uh, I was talking to a, a young kid the other day who, when I asked him what he wanted to do when he grew up, you know, a good Albertan kid would normally say, duh, I want to be a hockey player. <laughs> uh, and he said, well, I'm, I'm thinking of going into medicine. It looks like it's important, special stuff. And, and my older son, the minute he lost his government job because of COVID, the first thing he did was went and volunteered at a nursing home. So it is absolutely bringing out the humanity in some people, and it's wonderful. And you definitely don't need a medical degree or a nursing degree to have a ton of humanity. And I'm, I'm constantly amazed and humbled by the wonderful people you get to meet in a job like this, just because you meet everybody. So Yes, it's absolutely bringing out the humanity. There have been some dark aspects. You know, the doctor's parking lot has been broken into many times this month. Alcohol, hand sanitizers were stolen off the walls of our hospital. You know, these are the the things that aren't so great. But uh, again, with the risk of repeating what other people have said, it brings out the very best and the very worst. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your story and your time with us, Dr. Brindley. Well, very warmest regards to everyone listening. I know it's a very, very stressful time. Isolation is such a tough thing. The restrictions are extremely tough on everybody. My sympathies. Well, thank you so much. That is uh, Dr. Peter Brindley, critical care physician at the University of Alberta Hospital's intensive care unit. I think that's, there's no way you're not just going to be having that human side. You're not a robot if you work in in the medical field, and it cannot but affect you. And as I asked the doctor there, uh, you take it home. You don't just shut it off. It's not like, and I've worked retail, and I'm not saying anything about retail. What I loved about that job, and I worked in hardware, I could help customers. But when I left, I left. Shut off the light, I wasn't thinking, I wonder if I stirred that paint enough for that. (laughs) I didn't worry about that. Um, so there's certain jobs where there's there's that bonus, yeah. but in that field you cannot uh, weekends. You're probably still thinking about these people. I bet. I mean, I'm sure some are able to turn it off, but when you get you go through something like this, uh, it just it must you must carry it with you always. It's got to be a form the, of almost PTSD, yeah, you know, because a it's, a, it's like a family member. And and having had my dad in a long term care facility, um, and I didn't, I'd, I'd have conversations with people in the hallway when I was visiting. You get the sense that some of these people have been here for years and years and mm-hmm. years, and you don't see even, um, you know, visitors with them. I mean, that's not a hospital; that's long term. Uh, but all the family they have are the staff, and in the case of, of these ICU units, the medical professionals. And we had a friend who, a mutual friend who was in ICU, yeah. and his family would talk to the nurses every night, and the nurses would put a phone to mm-hmm. his ear, and they would say good night. So, I mean, you know, the nurses, the doctors. Really, you know, having to do an almost even superhuman job this time around during this pandemic. Certainly going way above and beyond, for for sure. sure. 6.42, and we're joined once again this morning by Global Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini in the thick of things with the latest on the protests happening south of our border. Good morning again, Reggie. Good morning. Well, it looks like protests were far more calm last night. Was that the case right across the states? Yeah, absolutely. It was a much calmer protest than we've seen over the last week or so. Uh, And, you know, there could be a number of different factors in there. The fact that curfews uh, are now in place and there could be a fear that, you know, people know that there's going to be an arrest if there is that that breach of curfew or if any kind of looting or violence takes place. Uh, But largely, yeah, across the entire country, here in D.C. as well, an incredibly peaceful protest. I mean, last night we had thousands upon thousands, probably the largest crowd that we've seen so far gathered uh, in front of Laugh. Lafayette Square. They were there until the very early morning hours with next to no skirmishes. 
Certainly large crowds, as you mentioned, Reggie, but also we did see images of military personnel in front of the Lincoln Monument. Uh, just how large was the military presence in D.C., and, and who exactly were they? We're seeing uh, conflicting reports that it might be uh, Department of uh, National Defense, might be military. Uh, who were they? Well, this is the big question. I mean, we're standing right now at 16th and I Street, which is a block further away from the park because we've been pushed back with a new perimeter. Uh, there's an entire line of police that are standing in front of us, and many of them have no badges on, they have no names, and they have no identifiers. So it's hard to tell who these uh, who these law enforcement personnel actually belong to. Uh, and it's the same with the situation on the mall last night. We're actually hearing that some of these officers are telling people that they're from the Department of Justice, but that's a very blanket term, and there really is no law enforcement uh, personnel that would be dedicated to that uh, uh, to that department. Uh, so it, it's difficult to tell, but the military presence in D.C. is still strong. They've taken over the streets downtown. Uh, they're really kind of pushing metropolitan police out into the neighborhoods, and we do still have the issue with those military choppers that are now under investigation for flying so low in the district. Is that strange, or is that, you know, maybe happened before in the states where there's military or, or some sort of officers that you don't know where they come from or who they are? No, it, it's it's unusual to have this, this at least this many and this level of enforcement not being able to figure it out. You know, oftentimes when we see military personnel, when we see uh, a number of different agencies come together, uh, it's very isolated, and you know what the reason is, whether it's a natural disaster response or whether it's some kind of uh, you know isolated incident in a particular city. But given the fact that the district is a federal jurisdiction, uh, it just gives a broad blanket range for these uh, law enforcement officials to kind of be here at the request of of the White House and the Trump administration, uh, but it is incredibly difficult and it is uh, unnerving for some of the actual residents of D.C. to not understand who's actually policing their streets right now. Huh. Reggie, we're hearing reports that the president is backing down somewhat from his threats. Uh, wondering if you can confirm this or do we see any indication that that is the case? Well, we are hearing reports that that is what the president or at least what advisors to the president are telling him to do, saying that it may have been too strong armed of a threat. We know that there was going to be a threat of legal action in New York state if the president had attempted to get any kind of military personnel uh, into the state. But it's also worth noting here that it may not have been across the board. Texas uh, had said that they don't want any kind of military personnel entering their state. And the president this morning tweeted back to Governor Abbott saying, well, that's great. Texas is running well. We wouldn't put the military there anyway. So this could have simply been a lot of bluster for the president to show that strong armed force of might that he uh, that he was looking for. Uh, but at the end of the day, this military threat appears to have been simply just a threat. Are curfews still in place in Washington and right across the country for the most part, Reggie? Yeah, these curfews are in place. A lot of them are early. They're just after the supper hour around 7 o'clock, but it really isn't acting as a deterrent, uh, or at least it's not clearing the streets. The protesters in D.C. were out until well after midnight, despite that 7 o'clock local curfew time. Uh, and, and it really, again, could be simply the fact that this curfew is there, so people are going to act appropriately on the street. Uh, there were a couple of skirmishes towards the very early morning hours, but nothing like we saw over the last couple of days, and that's something that we saw play out across the country with the sheer number of people on the streets well past those curfews. Well, thank you so much for the update, Reggie, and stay safe out there. Thank you. That is Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent. 908.
Well, Stampede 2020 may have been bucked off due to the coronavirus crisis, but organizers are getting back in the saddle to continue the ride, albeit in a bit of a different fashion for sure. The parade marshal officially announced this morning for the 2020 Stampede Parade. Yes, the the parade is not happening itself, but symbolically, I know we'll all be celebrating and we have a marshal. And that parade marshal is Felipe Massetti Leite, and his journey has been a long one. He joins us now. Hi, Felipe. Hello, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, congratulations. It's, it, I, I don't know if you realize it's quite an honour to be a Stampede Parade <laughs> Marshal for us here in this city. No, I think it's, a, it's an honour not only in the city but around the world. You know, I travelled through 12 nations and everyone I told uh, that I was coming from Calgary knew about the Calgary Stampede. Uh, this rodeo is world famous. And uh, yeah, look at the list of past parade marshals, right? I'm just over the moon. It's literally the biggest honour of my life. You're in great company, Felipe, uh, but you have a great story as well. Tell us about your background before we get to your current journey. Yes, sir. So I'm a journalist originally from Brazil. Um, Grew up around horses. My name's Felipe, and he's a friend or lover of horses. And before I could walk with my own legs, I was on top of a quarter horse with my dad. Um, Started this journey in 2012 at the Centennial Calgary Stampede, uh, chasing a lifelong dream. I rode 16,000 kilometers through 10 nations uh, back home to Brazil, 803 days in the saddle. Uh, Then when I got to Brazil, I went on a second journey uh, to raise funds for a children's cancer hospital in Brazil. And I rode all the way to Ushuaia, the southernmost city uh, in the world, at the bottom of Argentina, 7,500 kilometers. And now I'm on the last leg, the last stretch. I'm riding from Fairbanks, Alaska, obviously back to the Calgary Stampede where everything started eight years ago uh, to close the Americas from north to south and celebrate this dream that has, you know, taken over my life, become my life now. (laughs) You've been sitting in a saddle for eight years, Felipe? Yeah, better part of eight years. You know, as a journalist, I, you know, I stopped to write after each journey. I stopped to write my book. Uh, I stopped to, I write for the Toronto Star. I film everything for a production company out of Nashville. Uh, But yes, the writing has taken most of the past eight years. And Felipe, you've obviously had challenges over that number of years. And particularly in the past few months, your journey, has it been affected by the coronavirus crisis? And how has that changed things for you? Oh, of course. You know, I think there's not one person out there in the world uh, that has not been affected by this pandemic. Uh, We had to push our date, kept having to push our date forward. Uh, Didn't know if I was going to be able to finish the ride this year. At some point, it looked bleak. Uh, The Calgary Stampede was canceled. And I've known about being the parade marshal for a year now. And and when that happened, I was heartbroken. Uh, But, you know, like everyone else, we are... uh, figuring out a way to live in this post-pandemic world. And uh, as soon as I saw that uh, Alberta and Canada were bringing down the restrictions and that parks were open, I felt like it was safe to ride again. I've been pretty much self-quarantining for the past eight years. You know, I'm on top of mountains, I'm riding. I don't see or talk to another human being for days uh, while I'm in the saddle. So, you know, we're at it again. It hasn't changed much for me now that I'm riding. Uh, but yeah, it, before I began, uh, it was tough. And at, at one point, I didn't think I was going to be able to ride this year. Felipe, I'm just looking at your Instagram account and some incredible photos on there. Uh, if anybody wants so to much. to follow you along, really, what a journey. What, what have you learned about yourself and, and about life? I mean, you've had a lot of time to think. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> a lot of time to think. Um, I've learned so many lessons. I always tell people that the biggest lessons, greatest lessons of my life uh, were learned in the saddle. I learned that my limit is much further than I ever imagined. I learned that humanity is 
amazing. The people aren't good. The people are great. 99.9% of people, you know, are amazing. They help me every single day throughout these 12 nations, countries where people said I would be killed, like Mexico, Honduras. I only had love and people helping me. Those who had nothing gave me all they had. And I was able to sit down for dinner with people of all walks of life. You know, that was the most interesting thing. When you ride on horseback 30 kilometers a day, four kilometers an hour, I've ridden 25,000 kilometers through 12 countries. And every night, you know, whether it was a drug lord, whether it was a politician, whether it was a doctor, whether it was a ranch hand, I ate dinner with these people inside their homes. And I learned that, you know, a lot of things separate us and a lot of things change, but we are all inherently the same. We all want the same things. We want to love. We want to be loved. We want the best for our family and our children. And I think that's the biggest lesson that I'll take from this journey. Okay, so let's talk about the schedule. And uh, you're expected to arrive uh, basically when the stampede would have started, or actually the parade would have started? Yes, sir. I'll be uh, July 3rd. I'll be riding into Calgary. Just, just thinking about it, my heart just wants to explode in a point. <laughs> I am so excited. I've been holding this in for a year. You guys, you don't even know what it's like. I'm the worst at keeping secrets. <laughs> Dana Pierce comes out to Yukon and invites me, but then he says, but you can't tell anyone. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? So I'm just, I'm just over the moon. I'm so excited. I want to thank, uh, you know, the Calgary Stampede organization for trusting me with this. This means so much to me. I'm a cowboy. You know, I grew up with a cowboy hat, boots on, and to be the Calgary Stampede Parade Marshal, like it doesn't even feel real when I say it, is a tremendous honor. We can hear that you're slightly excited, Felipe. <laughs> so that's awesome news. That's what you want in a parade marshal. I'm wondering, you kept it a secret for a year. So can you tell us what it might look like when you come into town? Uh, there will be no parade, uh, but do you know if there's going to be a ceremony or is that still, you know, in the works? Uh, everything is still in the works. You know, I think there's a lot of exciting things that are going to happen. Uh, it may not look like your usual uh, parade that we've seen before, but what looks the same nowadays, right? 2020 has changed the world, like I said, for everyone. And uh, we're going to adapt to it as well. But we're going to celebrate the Calgary Stampede. We're going to celebrate what this event means, not only for Calgary, Calgary, but for the world and the cowboy culture and the Western heritage. And I think that's the most important thing. Um, we're really not going to let this year pass quiet. We're going to make a lot of noise. And I'm so excited. Well, Felipe, we're going to check in with you every Friday as we head towards the actual what would have been our stampede date. So we'll, we'll check in with you as you come along on your journey before you get back to Calgary. Yes, ma'am. Yes. And I just want to take the opportunity to let everyone know that my book, Long Ride Home, my first book that tells the story of my ride from Canada to Brazil, is free on Amazon today and tomorrow. And it's set to become a major motion picture. So make sure you download it before it comes out on the big screen. Well, our friend Simon Schmidt just texted in to say, I read the book on Felipe. Fabulous story. Thank you for introducing us to, a, to him. So you are our parade marshal for 2020. We'll check in with you on Fridays. And I uh, can't wait to talk to you because uh, we need to get you a little more excited about the job that you're, you're preparing for right now. Uh, let's go. <laughs> let's go. I can't wait. I can't wait. Thank you so much. Can't wait to get, you guys, to get to know you guys better uh, this next month as we chat every fi Friday and share this uh, the story that's coming to an end after eight years. You bet, Felipe. Thank you very much. Congratulations, our Calgary Stampede Marshal for 2020, Felipe Massetti Leite. We'll talk to him each Friday as we head towards that July date. It sounds quite daunting to this point. He's uh, been around the world, but it says here when they talk about the parade marshal, the Stampede had an embargoed release. We couldn't mention he's on his final 800 kilometer. Trek. Eight Final years he's been riding. 800K more, and then he'll complete it 
the excitement in Felipe's voice. I think this is outstanding. Fantastic. Absolutely. And I guess in uh, more excitement because we don't know what it's going to look like when he comes to town. He says it's still in the works. I mean, you know, come on, this is Stampede City. We may not be having the event. Mm -hmm. We may not be having the parade, but I feel like there's going to be something going on. And if not, Calgarians are going to get into it. We're going to do it our own way and figure it out for ourselves, I think. Celebrating with Felipe. He will deserve it after that journey, that's for sure. 849 Calgary Public Library offering up its most popular program once again. But this year, a little different. It's going to be online. Joining us to talk about the the ultimate summer challenge is Kate Schultz, who is the service design lead with the Calgary Public Library. Hi, Kate. Hi, good morning. Hey, thanks for joining us. So ultimate summer challenge, you can tell us how we'll do it in a sec, but tell us what it is first if people are new to this one. Sure. It's our annual summer learning program for kids 0 to 17. And uh, usually we have a reading challenge and a whole bunch of fun activities at the libraries all summer long. But this year we're going online. So how does it work? Is this a matter of reading as many books as possible or, uh, you know, hey, we're going to have a competition the most pages? Break it down for us. Yeah, for sure. So we have uh, we have three challenges. So if you're a child zero to five reading at home together with your family, we encourage you to read every day in June, July, and August. Mm -hmm. Kids six to 12 are challenged to read for 40 hours this summer, and they can track online or on a printable map. Um, that they can get off our website. And then teens are challenged to do a whole bunch of online activities and log as much reading as they can. Great. I mean, the kids love always to be challenging each other and themselves. Mm -hmm. What was the, how many hours of reading did, did you guys register last year? Oh, I think we had over 300,000 hours across the city. Yeah, wow. Calgary kids love to read. Yeah. Incredible. And it's not a competition, but it is mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, you're all going to be, everybody's going to be a winner because your lives will be enriched through reading and not just, you know, on the iPad all summer, but also <laughs> offering up some prizes. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. So if you register for the Ultimate Summer Challenge, you're automatically entered to win our grand prizes. So it doesn't matter how much you read, you're you're uh, in the running for the grand prizes. And we have iPads and Chromebooks and custom storybooks for the little guys. So that's really fun. And then you can bring in your completed challenge map when our libraries reopen, and you can get a reading reward for that as well. And then online, we have a whole bunch of uh, different activities and challenges you can do at home and in your neighborhood and earn digital badges and bragging rights for those. What about, Kate, the older kids slash adults who also <laughs> want a participation ribbon? <laughs> yes, well, we always encourage the adults in the house to read along with their kids so they can participate that way too. And, of course, we have a really popular teen program, the Teen Takeover, and it's always been online, actually. So it's inspired us to go online with the rest of the program this summer. Okay, this is going to be online, as mentioned. Can you give us any tidbits as to when we can see things uh, back up to, to snuff and operating at the Calgary uh, Public Library? Oh, well, we're eager to see everybody at the library, and we'll be reopening when it's safe to do so. We're working really closely with the province and the city on that plan, mm -hmm. and so I'm sure there will be some news coming out about that soon. Kate, how do we sign up for the Ultimate Summer Challenge 2020? Yeah, it's super easy and it's free. So all you need is your library card. Children need their own library cards to register, but you can get those online too. And it's calgarylibrary.ca slash summer. Thank you very much. It's, it's going to be fun and I know it's hugely popular, so I'll get my kids on board once again this year. Thanks for joining yeah, us. Yeah, that would be great. Okay, take care. You too. That's Kate Schultz, service design lead for the Calgary Public Library.
coming up on 649 now. And we've been asking Calgarians to let us know who they've noticed going the extra mile, something that, that, that deserves recognition that they've done through this COVID-19 pandemic and nominate them as our community champion. This morning, we've got our next nominator joining us. Janelle Wolberg is on the phone. Hi, Janelle. Hi, Sue. How are you? Excellent. Hey, thanks for joining us. I, I love the uh, the person and the group that you've nominated. I know exactly where you're talking about, mm-hmm. but tell us about Kathy Jacobs and why you nominated her. You bet. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Kathy, as you know, is such a special woman, and she really has a team of angels working for her. She's the owner-operator of Angels Cafe in Edworthy Park along the river in Calgary. And they've been there for, she's been there for 20 years, over 20 years actually, um, growing from a very small operation now to a fully um, licensed restaurant over the last couple of years. And she always says that she makes a living out of loving people and she really, really does. It's such a special place. People come down there and everybody leaves feeling better and having a smile on their face. So Janelle, what, what is your relationship and how did you come across this? Are you a regular customer or do you just know Kathy through uh, social circles? Well, you might laugh at this. Um, <laughs> Sue probably will. I actually met uh, Kathy only a couple of years ago at a Women Talk event. Okay. And it uh, wasn't a place that she normally went, but it was a place I, I love to go. And so we met and became instant friends. And actually, it was interesting because I wasn't a regular customer of Angels at that time. And at that time, Angels was in a bit of, of trouble, actually. It had to move its current small structure into a new location because of a power line issue in the area. And it really was a tough um, financial time for Kathy and her team, and she didn't know if if the business would be able to continue on in operation, which really um, makes that spot a special place for my family and I. We um, spent a lot of time helping her and her team um, bring that uh, facility to where it is today. And so the fact that Kathy has been through so much really says a lot about what I'm about to tell you that her and her team did for Calgarians during COVID. In fact, it probably um, inspired her and her team to do what they did. So explain to us, what, what did they do that makes her a community champion, particularly in your eyes? Well, during COVID, we know a lot of restaurants closed their doors. A lot of them continued with curbside um, services. It really has been a mixed situation here in Calgary. But Kathy and her team decided to continue on and prepare meals and um, gift baskets for Calgarians in need. So over the time of the pandemic, they have prepared 7,400 prepared meals and gift campers that have gone out to mostly senior citizens and just Calgarians who would not otherwise have had easy access or food at that time. There's a lot of people who actually come down to her shop and that's, you know, where where they eat all of their meals. Mm-hmm. So um, 7,400 meals. And she would want me to say it was absolutely a team effort. What happened was with the closure of a lot of restaurants, they brought their inventory to Kathy and donated it. There were food suppliers that donated um, container boxes and food. And of course, a lot of the local grocery stores brought massive shipments of, of bread and different types of food. And Kathy herself, uh, donated her inventory, and I happen to know money out of her own pocket 
Um, and who, all during a difficult time, right? And then we just saw, too, time. I saw on Facebook, somebody threw something through the window of her cafe. So now she's got to fork out money to try and fix that. Right. She, she really, she has been a fixture in the community. And yeah. uh, it's, it's wonderful that you're nominating her for this community champion recognition. Love that you've joined us, Janelle. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us, guys. Take care. That's Janelle Wolberg uh, nominating um, the Angels Cafe and Kathy Jacobs as our community champion. And uh, by the time this is all said and done, as we you know let you know about all the people that we're trying to recognize, one lucky champion is going to receive $350 to Calgary Co-op, delivered directly to their door by the 770 CHQR Community Cruiser, powered by Bow West Appliance. So go online and nominate them today. 770CHQR.ca, the contest tab, look for community champions. Always a great idea to give people... Some some credit for going above and beyond, as is this for Park to Go Airport parking with Value Valet. Thanking you for parking it at home at this time to help flatten the curve. Please keep safe.